Good morning. It's good to be with you this morning. Well, sort of. <laughs> on Wednesday, December 15th, I had to do some business out and about. I was on a road trip and I had to visit clients because I wanted to give them Christmas gifts. I want to tell them thank you for your business. Late in the afternoon of December 15th, I visited an internationally known designer. At least I went to visit him. He works and lives in Warrenton, Virginia, in something easily described as a castle. So I pulled up to his place, and I knocked from at the front door, and he wasn't there. But this very tall man answered the door. It was Michael Schmidt. He is Barry's partner. I went in, and I looked at the house and was awed. It was an amazing house. And Michael asked me if I would like a tour. And quite honestly, I was a little uneasy. So we chatted for a little bit. I told him Merry Christmas. I told him I'm sorry, Miss Barry. And then he stopped and he said, can I make you a cup of hot chocolate? Would you like to sit and talk? And I said, no. I wanted to go home. Would you pray with me? Our beloved Father, help us to see Jesus today. Amen. Before we get into the word, I think it's important to understand the setting. Scripturally, Jesus had just gotten into another altercation with the Pharisees. His disciples had come to him and said, Don't you know the Pharisees were offended when they heard you? Now, just as a side to you all, the responsive reading this morning was picked out three months ago by our pastor, Dave Silvernail. He had no idea what I was preaching on. Uh, he just picked it out. And I don't know if you noticed in the responsive reading, but Jesus ended that responsive reading by saying, blessed are you, blessed are those who are not offended by me. Thank you, God. Well, having been in ministry for two years now and constantly dealing with rejection and unbelief, Jesus needed some fresh air. He needed to get away. So we pick up the story with Jesus in Tyre, a Greek-speaking Gentile land 40 or 50 miles from where he had been in Galilee. Under Roman rule, this land, Phoenicia, had been annexed to Syria. That's where we get the word Syro-Phoenicia. And according to the religious leaders of Israel, this was Greek-speaking pagan Gentile dog country. If you can remember, two infamous things came from Tyre in the Old Testament, Baal and Jezebel. It was Baal worship that led to the northern kingdom of Israel going into permanent exile in 722 B.C., and it was Jezebel who liked killing the Lord's servants. The other mention of Tyre is in Psalm 87, where the Lord declares that there will be a day when the people of Tyre will know me. And so here we are. Jesus walks to Tyre with the twelve. He didn't seem to go there for healing or preaching. This two- or three-month trek was not undertaken as a crusade. It seems to have been a time for him to be alone with the disciples. Verse 24 of the Gospel of Mark says, He did not want anyone to know of his presence. That is the physical setting. But as in all of life, and as in all of the life of our Lord, there was a much larger setting, the eternal perspective, as it were, why was Jesus here? Why was he here in Tyre? Why, why was he here in Israel? Why was he here on earth? To get that picture, we have to use the word covenant, meaning an agreement or sacred promise. 
The covenant of redemption was a sacred promise between God the Father and God the Son. At its heart was the fact that man had, that the man they had made in their image would walk away from God. Man's actions would show that he neither needed God nor cared for God. This rebellion, this enmity, this self-absorption is called sin. As children of this man, Adam, we are, and humanity now is defined by this sin. This sin is in us, and it's a part of our nature. As a result, because of God's holy revulsion, those he made to share his life would live as slaves to sin, and they would die in that sin. So, the covenant of redemption is where the Father asked the Son to redeem us, to redeem means to pay the price to restore us to God. Because the son loved the father, he said, yes, yes, I will take the rebellion, and in taking the rebellion, I will be their substitute for your wrath. As Adam gave them sin and death, so I will give them life, and I will restore them to you. The book of Romans says, the Lord laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all, so that even though through one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so through the obedience of the one the many will be made righteous. The covenant of redemption is about sin and the price it cost. That's the short version. Equally important to this passage is the other side of this covenant coin, the covenant of grace, where God turned and promised us that the work of his son would restore us to himself and that this salvation would be ours as we expressed faith in the provision of Jesus. It would be faith and faith alone, a gift of the Holy Spirit, which would bring this salvation into our lives. So bear with me, please. I know we haven't gotten to the text yet, but the text outside of this context is hard to understand. Lastly, as these covenants only have meaning in our lives through faith, we have to understand what faith is. Faith is the proclamation from our souls that Jesus is Lord, and he is Lord of my life. It is the understanding and humbling of our hearts and acknowledgement that sin my sin separated me from God, and that only the life and death and resurrection of Christ, God the Son, on my behalf is enough to restore me to him. These ideas, this trust, is made real in my life as I repent from the evil in me and turn to Christ. For by grace have you been saved through this faith, and without this faith, it is impossible to please God. These are the covenants of God, and as these covenants are worked out in the time frame of man, they are called the gospel. That is the setting. And one more thing, please. The Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world, he is also the lion from the tribe of Judah. And that's not a metaphor. So today we get to see how Christ applies these gospel covenants in a town called Tyre. We get to see how very different people respond. Today we get to see the gospel at work 
in our lives and maybe how we respond. This passage is hard, and it was hard to prepare. But as I tell people that I meet with, I tell them, you know what? I get to tell people about Jesus, and you you got up, and you get to come to hear about Jesus. Does it get any better than that? For the text this morning, we're going to read Matthew 15, 21 through 28. I'm sorry, I don't think it's in your bulletins. My, my mistake, sorry. Uh, Matthew 15, 21 through 28. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. And he answered, I was only sent to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Are you as stunned as I am? Listen to these words. My daughter has a demon. He did not answer her a word. Tell her to go away. I'm only sent to the house of Israel. Lord, I'm begging you. You shouldn't take what is the children's and throw it to dogs. Paint a picture in your mind, will you, of this scene. Go ahead, paint that picture. You know, the, the return of the prodigal son, there was a picture painted by Rembrandt. And it was such a beautiful picture that people wrote books about the picture, about the story. So right now, in your mind, picture this. What do you see? See 12 angry men, maybe their arms crossed, maybe their backs turned. Does your picture include dirty tears running down a woman's face? Here's one. How do you picture Jesus' eyes? And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. It's quite shocking to be going about your business only to find a woman at your feet in tears begging for help. Well, maybe not for Jesus, but for most of us, yes. I'm sure it doesn't happen much, but if it did, what would be your reaction? Well, for the men of us, as typical males with common graces, I could say that we would listen to the problem presented. We would figure out how to beat that demon. We would go and beat that demon up. Problem presented, problem diagnosed, problem solved. One day recently, one day recently, a person came to the session asking prayer for their child. This child was having difficulties manifesting, those difficulties were manifest in their life in severe weight loss. I caught up with this member a little later, and in my best elder sympathy said, 
Have you had their gallbladder checked? With tender kindness in the eyes, this person looked at me and said, my child's problem goes a lot deeper than that. There are good ways to respond to issues. There are bad ways to respond to issues. And then there's the Jesus way. He did not answer her a word. Some commentators say he was silent to make this woman pursue him. After all, God loves a persistent faith. Some commentators say he used his silence to see how the disciples would react. After all, he was in tire to train these disciples. Both explanations are good. Both explanations are possible. But I think there's another thing going on here. We didn't read this, but the text as it's written in Mark, in Mark 7, is quite clear. When he entered the house, he wanted no one to know of it. He didn't want her there. He wanted to be alone. We've all experienced that. As a pastor, perhaps you go on vacation only to wake up to 40 emails. Or as a mother, perhaps your daughter cries all morning, all afternoon, and all night. You just want to get rid of her. Or perhaps you are offered a cup of hot chocolate and you just want to get out of there. Jesus was fully man. And as fully man, he needed the Holy Spirit just like us to live a life honoring the Father. And right at that moment, when he did not respond, perhaps, perhaps, it was because he was tempted. If temptation is the opportunity to express our unbelief, to express we don't trust the Lord or love the Lord, then Christ has to, once again, as he did in the desert, face that temptation. You know, Jesus, how do you feel? Said the devil. We have not a high priest that cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but who was in all points tempted like as we are, yet he was without sin. As Jesus knew that this woman was not there by accident, he had to face the choice of satisfying his flesh or satisfying the Father's heart. If the gospel were to come to this house, Jesus needed the Holy Spirit. The gospel always needs the Holy Spirit. In the silence of that spiritual struggle, if that's what it was, the disciples had an answer. These men, handpicked by Jesus, who had walked with Jesus for two years, who had witnessed countless miracles, who had touched God in the flesh, who knew that he was the Messiah, this little early church who had everything responds, tell her to go away. And that, I think, is the heart of this story. Mark Driscoll, the founder of Mars Hill Church in Seattle, Washington, said this about starting that church, quote, in one of the least church cities in America, I started with a bunch of tattooed, pierced, chain-smoking indie rockers for a core group. Good luck taking 10 guys committed to anarchy and making them the foundation of an evangelical church. 
I started Mars Hill, and it was a painful experience. I don't know if the disciples were tattooed or pierced. Pretty sure they weren't chain smokers, but I do know, I do know they were children of anarchy because I know they were children of Adam, sinners. And this, this, this response is painful. If you think self-absorbed Christians are a product of postmodern thought or are of this younger generation, think again. These disciples were masters at it. Who was it that pushed the children away? The disciples. Who was it that argued who would be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom? The disciples. Who was it that pushed the blind beggar away at Jericho? The disciples. All right, last question. Who was it that came to Jesus and requested him to do whatever they asked? The disciples. Self-absorption, or maybe another word, entitlement, has a long history with the people of God, and these disciples were steeped in that history. As shown in their history, entitlement never leads to repentance. It never leads to humility. It never leads to grace. Entitlement never seeks any purpose but its own. Yes, Jesus started his church with sinners. Within the year, he would set his face to the cross, and he would have to entrust these very men with his church. The ones he had called for his kingdom purposes were simply seeking their own, and he heard that. He was God, remember. Lived with those people for thousands of years. He knew, now get this, he knew that words like Israel and words like children resonated with them. After all, Jacob wrestled with God and was called Israel. Israel was rescued from Egypt. Israel was the name of both the northern and southern kingdoms in the land they took from the Canaanites. Israel was the people God restored from Babylon and set his presence among. And when the Messiah came, he was going to conquer the Romans for the people of Israel. And just as they took the title Israel as a means of privilege, so too, in the word children, they found privilege. It marked them as special, as different, as, as entitled. After all, they were the children of Abraham, children of the covenant, God's children. And they took these terms, these relationships, this unique history with God and said to the nations around them, you are dogs. The disciples turned to this Gentile, a Canaanite woman, an ancient enemy, and said, go away. That was not the Lord's heart. That was not what they were chosen for. Perhaps in their upbringing, their fathers had forgotten to teach them, Hosea too. Those who were not my people, I will call my people, and her who was not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called the sons of the living God. Perhaps they forgot. Perhaps they missed Isaiah 42. 
I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners, those who sit in darkness. Or maybe they were sick on Isaiah 49 day. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Jesus had to open the eyes of these men. He had to show them that he had called his people for a purpose and that the Israel of God was far greater than any geographic boundary or bloodline. He had to show them that Israel and children were covenant names and that these names belonged to the people of faith, his people. So he used this woman to teach them. Yes, he used her. And as he used her, he provoked her. Yes, he provoked her. With words like Israel and children, words these men had based their entitlement on, words that these men had built their walls by. He could have said, woman, your child is healed. Go your way and I can get back to my quiet time. He could have talked to her about her town, her girl, her husband, her life. What was her name? How long had her daughter suffered? But he didn't. In this moment, he needed her to teach these men. He needed to teach them what had always been his father's heart, and that is, from all the world, the just will live by faith. Yes, but I was only sent to the house of Israel, he replies, still not looking at the woman. Ah, these men would have nodded, yes, oh yes. Maybe one of the disciples would have thought, see, he loves us better. Her first request to him was to the son of David, a reference to the Messiahship, a very Jewish reference. But now when he mentions Israel and exclusivity, she drops the Jewish reference and calls him Lord, a sign she sees him differently, a sovereign, a ruler of the world, a ruler of the part of the world she was from. Lord, she says, help me. So what does Jesus do? He provokes her again. He pushes harder, but this time with a fully Jewish response. It is not good to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Every man in that room knew that they were the who were the children and who were the dogs. They knew that the word dog was the favorite Jewish term of contempt for anyone outside Israel. Jesus, however, lest you get really concerned, concerned. Jesus, however, did not use the Aramaic word for dog, that big, wild, ugly, dirty, flea-bitten, rabid, cur kind of dog. It's the kind of dog my wife and I saw on the outskirts of Egypt when we lived there. You wanted to stay far, far away from them. Jesus used the Greek word kunaria, little dog, because this woman would have a, would have a better understanding of what he said. Jesus referenced a little household dog in the Roman world. 
Jesus was socially rude, and he verbally provoked, but he was not mean. This woman would have known of the Roman custom of letting little dogs run in and out of the house, being fed as a member of the family, uh, being, uh, uh, being fed as a member of the family with leftover scraps from the table. The children were always fed first, and then only after the children had enough to eat would the leftovers from the table be fed to these little dogs. Not sure how much of that the disciples got, but they knew who the dogs were and they knew who the children were. Everything, everything that summed up their entitlement, their self-absorption, Jesus just put on the table. He would have probably worked in circumcision if she had been a man. Some commentators speculated that Jesus would have had a twinkle in his eye when he said that. I don't think so. But Jesus trying to teach the disciples, but Jesus trying to teach the disciples is only half the story. The other half is this unnamed woman. She came to Jesus wanting her daughter cured. Perhaps she had tried other local magicians, snake oil salesmen. Maybe she had spent all her money on anything she thought would work. Perhaps she was really desperate. How she heard about Jesus, no one knows. But at just the right time, her steps were directed to Jesus, and her tears fell at Jesus' feet. After spending time in this passage, may I say, with all kindness and humility, knowing about just part of the physical suffering that is going on in this very room, that Jesus is not so much about delivering our flesh from peril as he is about delivering our souls to his Father. She desperately wanted healing. She desperately needed faith. As I said in the beginning, Christ came for that faith. Christ treasures that faith. Christ will stop at nothing to provoke that faith. The question was not, was he able to heal her daughter? The question that needed to be answer was, answered was, is Jesus enough? Is Jesus sufficient? Is he God's provision for you? Am I a talisman, a vending machine, a miracle worker, a prophet, a good man? Or am I the bread of life? Do you want to use me? Or do you want me? She came with one question. Another question was answered. So she answers Jesus. Some have exclaimed at her clever answer. Some praise her for her persistent heart. Some credit her for holding her own in a room full of men. In the end, Jesus saved her. And in saving her, he treasured, he marveled, he was amazed at her faith. 
Because after he pushed her, after he provoked her, after he was rude to her, in the end, she cried out, Yes, Lord, I am a dog. I need grace. Jesus loved her faith. In her, in her, he loved showing his disciples the kingdom of God that he was building. So Jesus took this trembling woman, his daughter, and he healed her little girl. But to this one I will look, to the one who is humble and contrite in spirit, who trembles at my word. By faith, through his great mercy, darkness flees, death dies, and life begins. Little girls lift their head. And they say, Mommy, Mommy, I'm better. And her mother would grab her to herself, hold her as life itself, and in her sobs and in her tears and in her kisses, she would look at her little daughter and she would say, Yes, daughter, we have been saved. That is why Jesus came. If you are here today and Jesus is not your Savior, I would say that you are not here by accident. You may have many reasons for being here, questions that you want answered, daughters who are sick. I pray for you. I pray that you will move towards Christ. No. No. I pray that Christ will move towards you. For when Christ moves towards you, it is to bring you to faith. It is to bring you to the point where you get to look in that cup that he drank for you, to look into what is really true. He opens your eyes to show you the sins that lie in your heart, the rebellion of your souls, the condition of your human heart. He opens your eyes to show you your need. He will come to show you that you, made in God's image, made to love and be loved by him, you walked away from him. And in that place, that place in your soul, it is very dark and very lonely. It is needy and desperate. He came to show you that in drinking your cup, he took all of that to himself. And on the cross, he took the horrors of God's wrath because he took your sin. He did this because he loved the Father. And God the Father Almighty loved you. The lion of the tribe of Judah will not bow down to social politeness. He will not meet your expectations of him. He will not prove anything to you. He may even provoke and provoke and provoke you. But so that you, in the end, will bow down to him and live. So that someday, with all the children of God, with this woman and her daughter included, he will present you to his Father to love and be loved by God himself forever and ever. It should end here. 
But to end now would be to tell only half the story. For even as our Lord saves us from our sins, He saves us to His kingdom. He delivered us, Colossians says, He delivered us from the domain of darkness and delivered us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. He saves us to His kingdom for our story has a future to write. As we belong to Him, He will use us for His kingdom purposes. We... (laughs) We are the church entrusted, not entitled. The disciples had forgotten that, but Jesus used a woman to teach them, and eventually they would come to learn it. The disciple John, who sat and tired and told this woman to go away, he would later write, quote, He came to his own, but his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them gave he the right to become the children of God. Even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but who were born of God. Aren't those words beautiful? Aren't they beautiful in the context of this passage? Peter would write, in kind. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own choosing, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. For once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God, and once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. That is our heritage. That is who we are. We are a people who have received this magnificent mercy so that we might walk in a manner worthy of his calling, so that we would walk in the works Christ long ago prepared for us, so that we would be the people who proclaim the excellencies of our Savior. Beloved, We are that city set on a hill. We are that light to the world. The lion from the tribe of Judah, he is about his kingdom. And here we sit. Sue, Dave, and Nick. Jeremy, Karen, John, Andy, Wendy, Suzanne, Jonathan. And I can't see you all back there, but I know your names. Here we all sit. We are the ones. We are the ones who have received this magnificent mercy. Like the disciples, We are the Israel of God. How will we respond?
Will the world hear like this woman heard? This, this is me and Jesus' time. Will they hear our apathy? Will they hear our entitlement? Will the world hear our self-absorption? Or will they hear the gospel? We have been entrusted for the gospel for the people sitting behind us. We have been entrusted with the gospel for the neighbor that lives next to us. And we, we have been entrusted with the gospel for that ancient enemy that walks into our lives. There are people in this room today who need a savior, who need his mercy, who need faith. Do you know that? May I suggest that if your life is not for Christ to use, then you, you and I, we need the gospel again. We must be confronted of our, for our need of a Savior, for this same Savior, and that He, He alone, is enough. We must once again look into that cup that Jesus drank for us to see our greater need and His greater grace. And when we do, we will eat from the bread of life and we will draw from the fountain of living water and we will live again and we will live again to Christ. His heart will once again become our heart. We will become his feet and hands and eyes. He will call us his body. And even as the Father used the Son in the covenant of redemption, the Son, our Lord, promises to use us. Our children may not be cured our businesses may fail. Our loved ones may die. Oh my. He may even use these things for his kingdom purposes. When businesses fail, it might not be about you at all. It might be about Jesus. It might be for others. But if his, if his heart is our heart, if his heart is our heart, then in all these things, like Job, like this woman, we will raise our voices and cry out, though he slay me, yet will I trust him. If you are here today in Christ, then rest assured, Christ has chosen to use you. And you will know when he is done using you, because that will be the day you go home to be with him. If you don't know how you can be used, if you don't want to be used, if you feel useless, if you don't know how Christ has gifted you for his purposes, come. Talk to an elder. Talk to a pastor. Talk to a friend. We will point you to your Redeemer, Christ, who loved you and gave himself up for you, who gives the Spirit without measure.
who gives to his people everything pertaining to life and godliness. Our heart, our heart is that one day you will wake up and say, Hallelujah, the Lord is using me. I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but it is Jesus the Christ who lives through me. That is the gospel, and the gospel is for you, and you are for Jesus. Amen. Let's pray. Beloved Father, if your strength is perfected in our weakness, then make us weak. If the heart of your Son is to use us in ways that hurt, then grant us grace as we hurt. If you want to use our tears and our children for your kingdom purposes, then grant us grace as we watch you use them. Beloved Jesus, may we as a people once again fix our eyes on you. In your holy name and for your kingdom's sake, amen. <clears throat>